From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, visual manifestations of migraines and fungal keratitis at AAO 2017. The thing that the ophthalmologist has to be able to distinguish is between aura, which is a limited phenomenon, and visual snow. First this. If time and money were no object, you'd probably go to a lot of meetings. Not just ASCRS, but ESCRS, APACRS, AAO, Hawaiian Eye, and Winter Update, and you'd learn a ton. But money is an issue, and time an even bigger one. That's why I go to all of those meetings for you. Speak with the presenters you'd like best, and get them to distill their talks down to just a few minutes. You can see all of these interviews at no cost at the iWorld Replay website. Just go to ewreplay.org, E-W-R-E-P-L-A-Y.org, and enjoy. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2017 meeting of the American Academy of Ophthalmology in New Orleans. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Kathleen Degree on visual manifestations of migraines and Eduardo Alfonso on fungal keratitis. I'm here with Kathleen Degree. Kathleen, you gave a wonderful talk. I have I've all sorts of patients who come into my practice that fall well within the scope of what you spoke about. Sometimes a primary care doctor will send a patient in who's getting headaches, rule out eye pathology. Sometimes a patient will, will, will come in with visual aura. What I didn't realize is that the scope of migraines the manifestations are so much wider than just those 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 two things. Can I get you to sort of lay out the uh, topic for us, and then we can break it down into smaller pieces? So, uh, thanks, Josh. Uh, migraine is more than a headache. Uh, migraine is a disorder of sensory processing, especially visual and sensory, or pain. And it's more common than asthma and diabetes combined. An ophthalmologist is going to see migraine every single day in your practice. Every day you're going to see this. And there are some key messages that um, I tried to uh, highlight in my talk. Uh, First, the brain of a person with migraine is different brain than a person that doesn't get migraine. They have a very sensitive visual system. So this system uh, is so sensitive that sometimes they have other phenomenon that normal people don't complain about. Like they may complain about excessive floaters and toptic phenomenon, and especially there's a condition that many ophthalmologists aren't aware of, which is visual snow. So visual snow is a disorder of uh, processing. It's kind of like tinnitus in the visual system. And, and it's more common than we realize, but these people experience grainy vision, Uh, and toptic phenomenon, and they can see through them. Their vision is 20, 20, 20, 15, and completely normal visual examinations. These people are not crazy. They just have a really sensitive brain. 
A second point that I really tried to make is that the eye plays a big role in people with chronic migraine and chronic pain. Because the dura and the cornea are both served by the first trigeminal nerve. And this means that uh, people with migraine are going to have a sensory system that is also different than a normal person's sensory system. In some studies, there's been shown that chronic migraine patients actually have lower tear film, tear, lower tear film breakup time. But in some studies, there's a huge, huge mismatch. They come in complaining that their eyes hurt, and, and they do Shermer's testing, they do tear film breakup time, and they're all normal. And yet, these people have terrible complaints. And we did a study just recently that looked at the corneal nerves in people with chronic migraine. And these nerves were shorter and, uh, and were uh, less numerous. And just recently, in 2017, in the journal Cornea by Shetty, uh, there was a study that showed the exact same thing in people with chronic photophobia. So that the cornea is playing some role in migraine. I don't know if it's the changes in the nerve are the result of migraine. Could it be a biochemical change related to calcitonin gene-related peptide? Or could it be that there's a central sensitization that's taking place in the brain of people with migraine, giving them the sensation of pain in the eye when there's no real obvious cause? And then the third thing is that ophthalmologists will see people with photophobia. I bet you see that in your practice all the time. Yeah, every day. So photophobia, as we all know, can be from an eye cause, either the anterior segment or posterior segment, or from the brain, meningitis, pituitary tumors, etc. But the most common cause of chronic photophobia is actually migraine. And so you're going to see migraine-related photophobia a lot. And in my talk, I tried to outline that there are distinct steps that you can take to diagnose the cause of photophobia. Photophobia is just a symptom, just as you would think about blurred vision or eye pain or any other symptom that somebody complains about. We should put this as one of the chief complaints, and then we have a way to work that up. And in my talk, I went through all the steps that you can take to make the correct diagnosis of photophobia. Uh, And the most common cause is migraine. Uh, dry eyes is right up there uh, causing it. And if they've got migraine and dry eyes, they really have photophobia. And then the ophthalmologist can really play a role in treatment. Not only will it, can they treat the dry eyes, and they know how to do that, but they can also um, help with uh, blue-blocking lenses. In photophobia, we've learned that melanopsin, this intrinsically photoretinal ganglion cell, is really active in photophobia, and it's linked to the trigeminal system and to migraine, and that uh, a ophthalmologist can actually play a role in helping people understand uh, that they can use a blue-blocking lens like FL41 tint uh, to treat uh, people who have chronic migraine or light sensitivity. Oh, really, really, really interesting. Okay, so I, I want to circle back to one of the things that you've said. When we think about migraine aura, there are two characteristics that define them. They are episodic, Mm -hmm. and they involve only part of the visual field. What about visual snow? Is is that something that is also episodic, and is that something that is limited to only part of the visual field? Very good question, because the, the thing that the ophthalmologist has to be able to distinguish is between aura, which is a limited phenomenon, and visual snow. Visual snow is continuous. Now, if these people ignore the snow, they can kind of ignore it and not pay attention to it. 
But most people who have visual snow, if they look at it, they see silvery lines and they see this grainy vision all the time. This is not visual aura. Visual aura comes from cortical spreading depression in the occipital lobe. It starts little and gets bigger and bigger and bigger, or big and then gets little, or there's some other change in the vision. But it's a discrete episode. It usually lasts less than an hour. It may or may not be followed by a headache. But visual snow is continuous eye symptoms. And I think that we just haven't recognized this. Patients complain of this. If you ask your next few migraine patients if they ever see enhanced entoptic phenomenon or their floaters more easily or they go to the sky and they can almost see their red blood cells running around, those, that's what we're talking about. It's a continuous phenomenon. Older people will recognize it as the old analog TV sets where the, right. the fuzz, the snow would come on. That's exactly what these people complain about. Oh, really, really, really interesting stuff. So you mentioned uh, uh, having spectacles with a, uh, with a, with a blue-blocking tint. Um, what, what, are the, what are the other avenues for, for treatment? And in the context of, of my practice, I'm typically managing the, the, these patients in conjunction with their, their regular medical doctor. What are the sorts of things that I may want to suggest as a consultant to the doctor? So uh, first, make all the correct diagnoses. If they've got dry eyes, you've got to say, they've got dry eyes, I'm going to treat it with XYZ. Sure. Uh, if they're light sensitive, uh, recommend that they get FL41 tint, which is very inexpensive, and um, optical shops do know about this tint, um, and so they can do that. For people who are extremely bothered by their light sensitivity, uh, recently onobotulinum toxin has been shown to be helpful. There was a great series that just came out in AJO uh, where they did a whole series of patients with chronic photophobia, and their photophobia got better using onobotulinum toxin. Oh, this is wonderful, wonderful stuff. These patients come in, I mean, I, I after hearing your uh, conversation here it's it's clear that the patients are coming in more more frequently than than i think but even those who i have recognized coming in they make up a sizable portion of the practice i want to thank you very much for making this very very complicated multifaceted topic so very clear and for being so very generous with your time with us today thank you so much i'm here with eddie alfonso eddie Fungal keratinities are some of the most challenging uh, corneal pathologies that, 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 we, that we deal with. Um, you have made the uh, point that diagnosis should dictate therapy for, for, these, for these patients. I want you to sort of give me the uh, lay of the, of the land first, then I'm going to have more specific questions for you. Sure, Josh. So uh, for fungal keratitis, one of the problems we've had is identifying the fact that it's fungal keratitis. But today with smear and culture and as well as molecular diagnosis, we can uh, do much better than we did just with clinical acumen. Uh, the study that came out that showed that when we just look at slit lamp characteristics and history of the patient, that showed us that 55% of the time we were going to be wrong with the diagnosis has led us to really use the microbiology laboratory more to avoid that 55% error in making a correct diagnosis. And once we make the correct diagnosis, the MUT study has really helped us align our therapy based on what organism is invading the cornea. And so 
it, let, let me get you to uh, just very, very briefly outline the uh, findings of the, of the MUT study and of your clinical trial too, because that's going to dictate, if nothing else, the rest of our conversation. Sure. So the MUT study, uh, MUT1, showed that for filamentous uh, keratitis, uh, natamycin is superior to topical voriconazole. Uh, in the treatment of, of this disease. And in particularly when it's uh, fusarium, uh, natamycin is better than voriconazole. In non-filamentous cases, then uh, voriconazole is probably as good as uh, natamycin is. The MUT2 study showed that in addition to topical natamycin, the uh, addition of systemic oral voriconazole in cases of fusarium keratitis uh, helps. So we should be considering using systemic therapy in that specific group of, of patients once we've identified that there are fusarium solani positive uh, keratitis. Our study showed that in that particular group, medical therapy may still not be adequate and that we should be considering early keratoplasty potentially lamellar keratoplasty because they tend to be young males that suffer from this disease and uh, we catch the disease when it's anterior and not likely to progress into endophthalmitis, much better chance of, uh, of cure. And for, for these patients, for these fungal keratitides, there, there is not a, correct me, there's not a sufficiently distinguishing presentation to clue you in as to what the pathogen is. That is absolutely correct. And one of the problems that uh, was pointed out by the group at Baylor uh, when they looked at clinical characteristics of uh, keratitis is that the worst uh, identification is in fungal keratitis. Even though when I trained, you know, if you had certain clinical characteristics, you say, oh, it's got to be fungal keratitis. Well, what this study showed is that we're probably wrong 55% of the time, which is not great. Well, this is, this is wonderful stuff. I mean, obviously, the keratitis isn't wonderful stuff. Yeah. They, what you've taught us. Um, I, 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 I want to thank you for making this very complicated topic so very clear. And, Eddie, for being so very generous with your time with us today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Kathleen Degree is Professor of Ophthalmology and Visual Science at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah. Eduardo Alfonso is Professor and Chairman at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute in Miami, Florida. Ask questions of Dr. Degree, Dr. Alfonso, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.